Hey there, welcome. It's episode 40 of No Guitar Is Safe. Thanks for listening. Today, we're about to copter over, chopper our way, fly through the sky to Swing House Studios, a fantastic facility in the Glendale area of Los Angeles. And I can't thank them enough for giving me great rooms to do interviews when I need to be over there because what an opportunity I had today. And that was to plug in with and sit down with and hear the amazing life story of a true hard rock metal pioneer, badass guitarist, door kick downer, tiger stare in the facer. She has no fear. She just loves playing guitar and accidentally changed history in the process. The amazing Lita Ford. Run, baby, run. Yeah, you can't slow That's one of her more recent songs. It's called Living Like a Runaway. It's a really beautiful song, and also I like it because it kind of tells her life story in one song. Has a great jam at the end, too. She also has a book called Living Like a Runaway. It's now out in paperback as well as hardcover. It's a bestseller, and for good reason, because it's impossible to put down. Now, I love rock and roll biographies, but some of them don't have the same depth as this one. First of all, Lita keeps it so real. She does not spare any details. She is very candid, and she tells it like it was and like it is. And uh, there are some of the most just spectacular stories of triumph, of hilarity, of anguish, of tragedy. It's all in there. And of course the insanity of rock and roll excess on like the sunset strip in the 80s onward you won't believe it i mean it starts out with of course she gets her first guitar in like the fifth grade and by the time she's got a driver's license she's been recruited to play in the runaways that's the runaways hit song that i'm sure you know called cherry bomb It actually had a big resurgence in the recent movie Guardians of the Galaxy. But the real thing about this book is it goes deeper than just, you know, a rock and roll tell-all memoir. It's actually got so much heart and passion, and it's a true love story between Lita and her parents, who were incredible rock and roll parents, and love just pours through the pages. Lita's had so many spectacular moments of her career. Recording a hit song, top 10 song with Ozzy Osbourne, co-writing. She received a certified legend award from Guitar Player Magazine, which was presented to her by Guitar Player's editor-in-chief Michael Melinda last year. If I close my eyes forever. Before we head over there, I want to thank you all for signing up by the hundreds. Like I think 500 of you took advantage of the deal. And guess what? I called them up and extended the deal for you. That's right. For five bucks, you can get a year of Guitar Player Magazine or extend your subscription to Guitar Player Magazine for another year 
For just $5, head to guitarplayer.com slash NGIS, as in no guitar is safe. I called them. I'm like, you know, let's, let's run it through to January 1st. I mean, why kill it for the holidays? So there you have it. $5, 12 issues. Just head to guitarplayer.com slash NGIS. My name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening. Listen, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy 2017 to you. We're going to head over to Swing House Studios, where I will be holding a Gibson Explorer. It's actually an X-Plorer. came out in like 2005, Gibson. It's a slightly smaller version of a Gibson Explorer. I brought that one because it's a really killer guitar and because I know Lita loves Explorers. But she is wielding a spectacular guitar from Dean Zielinski of Dean Guitar fame. And yes, you'll have to see a photo of this on the No Guitar Safe Facebook page or I'll put it up on Twitter, which is at Jude underscore gold. And she's plugged into a Marshall amp. Oh, before I forget, we also get podcast bombed by Nick Bocott. What I mean by that is we get a guest appearance from Nick Bocott of Marshall Amplifiers. I think it's safe to say that Nick is probably the most dedicated hard-rocking product artist relations guy you'll ever meet he's got a tattoo of jim marshall founder of marshall lamps on one forearm perfect photographic tattoo on the other he's got his dearly departed homie dimebag daryl on the other forearm he's just a cool bloke love me some nick bocott he came by to show lita and me and you the code 25 combo amp from Marshall that has like a hundred presets and you can control it with your phone. We actually hung out and listened to this amp and nerded out on it for gosh, 45 minutes. And it was great. I can't run all that, but I'll run a little piece of it. If you want to learn more, check out Marshall's code 25 or other code amplifiers online. And also hanging out in this interview is Jared Wozniak, Lita's tech who goes on crazy road adventures with her. And as the scene opens, Lita's checking out my wah pedal. I brought her a wah-wah pedal because I didn't know if she would bring one. I know she likes them. It turns out their gear is stuck on an airline somewhere right now, so she didn't have her pedal board. But I did bring her a 95Q wah from Dunlop, which she was liking and tripping out on because it's one of those wahs that turns on automatically. You know, a lot of people don't use them, but I love them. It's, there's no button on it. Just the second you start pressing it down, it turns on. So we open on like a hard rock blues in the key of E flat, the key of rock. All strings down a half step. Let's hop in the chopper and do this. And head over to Swing House and plug in with Lita Ford. Oh, my God.
turn off? As soon as you like move it a quarter inch down, it turns on. Oh. So that's kind of fun. So once you place your foot on it, it basically turns on. So that's off. Yep, it's off. It just wow, that's badass. That's pretty cool. Like I oh. said, it's, it's funny when people aren't familiar with them and they walk on your they get set up on your stage. They're trying yeah. to press with all their might yeah, to get yeah, the yeah, click, yeah. and there's no click. Yeah, I can move around. I sit down. If we play, I can. St I can't play sitting down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're, you've been. You're, that's a good problem to have. Most people have the other problem. Do they really? <laughs> yeah. Most people are like, oh, you know, I've been practicing this lick all week sitting yeah. down, and now I got to play standing up. Yeah, I yeah. should have practiced it standing up. But you spend your whole life standing up, rocking out. My entire yeah. life. We went out and did an acoustic tour, and um, Patrick Kennison, um, our guitar player, and I both. It was just the two of us, and. Uh, he had to sit down to play acoustic guitar, and I couldn't. But uh, he says to me, well, why don't you try standing up? It's going to look weird, Lita, if you stand up. So I'm going to sit down, but maybe it'll work. So let's try it. So I stood up, and it was rocking because I was able to... You throw some shapes, and I put on my high heels so I was a little taller, and I was even with him because he was sitting up on a bench, and it worked. Was, you know, I was able to walk over to him and kind of look at it and see what he was playing. And Now, that's funny because I guess for you, sitting and playing is less comfortable than standing and playing. I can't do it. I just can't. That's, that's cool. That's great. <laughs> What's this guitar you're playing? This first is of all? a Dean. It is made by Dean Zielinski. When Dean broke off uh, from Dean Guitars, I don't know if, if everyone knows that, but right. um, he started these guitars called Boleros, and I fell in love with them. They're so beautiful. Sort of a Les Paul shape in inspiration, but so much more. Yeah, very beautiful, classy looking guitars. There's a white one and a black one. And that's it. Take a picture? Yeah, sure. I don't know how clean it is. It doesn't come in any other color. I brought you a Fiji water here. My Fiji's, my favorite water. It's my favorite water. You know, my ex-husband used to mess with me because I had this thing with waters. I liked good water. I mean, it's, it's water, for God's sakes, you know? So one day he thought, she doesn't know what she's drinking. She can't tell the difference. So he poured my Fiji out and filled the glass full of t regular tap water. And you can tell. You can completely tell the difference, even if you don't know it. And this was in the Caribbean, so the water was really different. It's just, dude, leave me alone. Let me drink my water. It's water. But out, out in the Fiji, the Fiji's from the Caribbean, right? Well, Fiji is um, on the other side of the world. This is I knew more, that. I should have known that. Right? This Let's is past Hawaii. <laughs> I know my geography. It's In school, I got Ds and Fs in geography. I never knew anything about these foreign countries. And then reading about them in a book is even more boring and I just didn't want to do it. But when I joined the Runaways and actually went to these countries, Sweden and Europe and Japan and toward the United States, I got it. 
I got the currency. I got some of the language. I got the roads, the system, the way people talk and live. And I mean, even the toilets were backwards and in the ground. And, you know, stuff was so different that you'd never learn in a school. I know you had the best geography schooling by the time you were 18. You had like a complete world tour already. Yeah. Which is insane. And it's funny, you're mentioning your guitar player. And uh, we were going to do this interview about a week or two ago at one of your shows. And I know, I know how insane it can be to do an interview at a show before sound check. Anything can happen. But sure enough, you guys had some trouble at the airport. Yeah. Involving some bullets or something. Could you explain? <sighs> yes, we had some problems. Um, our guitar player, Patrick, I, I had the same strap. Uh, in 1988, I think it was, in the Lita era when we did the Kiss Me Deadly album, um, I had a guitar strap that was made out of bullets. But mine didn't have any gunpowder in the bullets because it was lightweight and it was just for show. But his had real gunpowder in it. And they nailed us for this guitar strap. We're like, dude, we're musicians. We don't shoot things. We play things. So it delayed the flight. It delayed us. It was a nightmare. He finally got it back, though, because they they wanted us to give it to them and they wanted to confiscate it. But he didn't. He left it so a friend could come and pick it up that lived in Texas. This is in Texas. And uh, she went and got it picked it up and he ended up getting his strap back wow and we went to europe with it and they didn't do it in europe they let him have it well the scary part is that they the tsa has been proven to miss the test sometimes when they put like a fake bomb through or even did they it happened a few times yeah and like they only caught it some of the time right right i shouldn't even be saying this stuff i shouldn't be propagating this story yeah it's that time of year so speaking of this time of year you have one of the best presents or stocking stuffers that uh any rocker could give another rocker which is your autobiography living like a runaway this came out this year right yes february and now it's in paperback i've seen it in lax even in the bookstore there yeah and it is such a good read so completely addictive and so full of love and adventure and rock and roll excess and rock and roll injuries. <laughs> it's one of the best I've ever read, actually. And I read a lot of them, like Mick Fleetwood's and Motley Crue's and Gray Slicks. And this one's a really good, real page turner. Cool. Congratulations on that. Now, like, where do you even begin to set your pen down on such a huge job like this? Now, I know you had a, a co-writer, but how do you start to write your life story? Well, um, the co-writer that I had was turned out to be a real chauvinistic you know what and I couldn't work with him so we ended up getting somebody else and she didn't know this this second person didn't know anything about rock and roll her her terminology was just ridiculous it was they were words I would never ever use like for instance Let's go to practice, you know, instead of I'll see you at rehearsal. She would, she would write down, let's go to practice. And I thought, she's just not getting it. She, she doesn't get it. Then it got to the point where she wouldn't return my phone calls. She would say, just text it to me. And I thought, well, that's going to make for a good book. And I told Peter Hubbard over at HarperCollins, I was really depressed because at this point it had been two years, going on three years that I'd been trying to get the book out. 
I told Peter with my head down, we were walking out, having some lunch and taking a walk on the streets in New York. And I said, I, I don't know about this book. I said, this book is a fight. And he looked at me and he said, Lita, the best books always are. And I took that and I went, you know, I can do this. So I got rid of the chick that didn't know she was doing what she was doing. I got rid of the chauvinistic guy. And then uh, I just ended up basically doing it with myself, with this lady from Canada who was excellent on computers, just putting pieces together and uh, doing research. So basically what she, she did was help me just put the thing together and... Um, say, you know, chronologically, this didn't happen first, this happened first. So she was a big help in that that way. But as far as writing the book, nobody wrote anything. I know, it sounds like your own voice. I mean, it's a spectacular book because it's so raw, but it still is completely professionally done, not a word out of place. And chronologically, it holds together. It's It locks together like a Rubik's Cube, you know? Uh, I had to have it that way. Oh, it's just hilarious and, and inspiring and such a story of love with your awesome rock and roll parents. Um, obviously, we can't cover right. all of the stuff that's in there. So you, you just got to read the book, people. But I would like to maybe just ask you, what inspired you to pick up a guitar in the first place? There wasn't one thing. You know how someone will say, oh, I saw this guy play guitar and that's what I want to do. That happened to me, but it didn't happen until I'd already been playing for two years. Was it two years? So at 11 years old, I wanted a guitar. I just wanted a guitar. There, There wasn't one person that I had seen that was a guitar player or a musician that made me want to play guitar. It was just something I wanted. It was, it was in my heart. And uh, I had been playing guitar for two years before I saw my first concert. And uh, when I saw my first concert, that's when I knew what I wanted to do. So it chose you before you were ready to choose it. What guitar did you have in mind when you knew you wanted a guitar and what did you end up getting? Well, I was 11, so I had to get what mom and dad gave me, which um, at that point, I didn't even know what I wanted. I wanted a guitar. I wanted an electric guitar. Where I screwed up was being 11 years old, I didn't ask her for an electric guitar. I asked her for a guitar. So she gave me an acoustic guitar with nylon strings. We lived in an apartment, and I figured... She's probably thinking logically here, you know, that it's going to keep the, the noise volume down because we're in an apartment. And I said to her, Mom, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I really love this guitar. Thank you so much. But this isn't the one I wanted. And she said, well, what did you want? And I said, well, I think I want steel strings. And at that point, I didn't even know what I wanted. So the guitar, I, the second guitar I got, was another acoustic with steel strings. Oh. So she, both of us, I mean, I, I can't blame her because it was my fault too. We still screwed up. We still didn't get it right. But I still have that guitar in storage, the one I got when I was, what, 12? Then I went to a Black Sabbath concert and I saw Tony Iommi play, who's in the book. And... 
that's then when I realized what kind of guitar I wanted. I saw the electric, you know, the, I, at the time I think he was playing it an SG, but it wasn't an SG. It was some kind of uh, guitar that looked like an SG that he had made in England through a friend of his that was starting to build guitars. I can't remember the name of those damn things. I never do. But a beautiful guitar. And so I thought, that's what I want. I want one of those. And uh, I got a job working at a hospital. I lied about my age. I was 14. And you're supposed to be 16 legally in the state of California back then. To get a job and get a paycheck, you have to be 16 at least. So because I had big boobs <laughs> and 14 years old, I played it up and my mother helped me. You know, she's, Lita, put on this bra, put, put on one of these. It gives you more. Super mom. You know, so I'm like, okay, mom, I'll wear this. Should I wear white pants? Oh, yeah, right, Lita. Put on the white pants. You know, it, it makes you look more professional and, you know, not so rock and roll. So I got dressed up and I went to this big medical center down in Long Beach, California, St. Mary's Medical Center. And her friend was one of the uh, security guards that worked there. He hooked us up with um, Jaylee, who ran the food and service beverage era section in the hospital. I don't know what you call it. But uh, my mother took me in there to talk to Jaylee and said, this is my daughter. Didn't say how old I was. Said I wanted a job. And uh, then she asked me, how old are you? And I blurted out, I'm 16, before my mother could even blink an eye. And she just looked at me like, no, you're not, <laughs> but didn't say anything. So they gave me the job, and I saved up my first couple of paychecks to buy myself a chocolate Gibson SG. Wow, you earned that. So I earned it, bought it myself. Yeah. And I, I relate to you because, yeah, when I started out as a kid, I played guitar, played steel string, but I wasn't super into it until I discovered rock and funk and Nile Rodgers and metal. Yeah. Now, what's the first riff you remember playing? Well, the funny thing is, is I had these acoustic guitars with nylon strings, but I'm still playing Black Sabbath. Yeah. I was still playing... Uh, the first album was the first album. I can't remember the songs off the top of my head. Um, Black Sabbath, um, Deep Purple, um, Led Zeppelin when Zeppelin came out. I was playing all these songs on the acoustic guitar, even though that's not the kind of guitar you would do that on. That's all I knew, and that's what I wanted to play. So yeah. my father had a Sony reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And it must have been probably as big as that Marshall, maybe as big as the, uh, the Black Star. Yeah, which is like a 2 by 12 head and cabinet. Yeah, I mean, it was stupid huge for just a tape recorder. He'd spent $600, $700 on it at Sears, and it opened up. You took the speakers off. They were huge, and it had a reel-to-reel -reel on it and a little switch. And if you hit the switch, it was a delay. So I would Rad. plug my guitar into this tape recorder, slap on the delay, or the echo, as they called it back then, and I had this big sounding guitar once I got the SG. 
Was it even tubes? I don't know. I used to plug into an old tube receiver. Wow, I never thought to look. Yeah, you never know with that old stuff. But so yeah, you ended up in a band or two and rocked a huge birthday party on your block. But (laughs) at some point you end up getting a call from this character named Kim Fowley. Or how does that work? Tell me about this guy. I know he recently passed away. And I know that there's been some ugly allegations that have arisen about him from his behavior in that era, which is a million years ago, and luckily didn't involve you. But forgetting all that, you know, at the time you're 16 or so, and he's a real record producer. Yeah, it was... uh, You know, again, with the support of my my mom and dad... And I don't know if I could have done what they did, my parents. Um, but he said, basically, he said, you know, we're, I'm putting together an all-girl band. Everybody's underage. I live in Hollywood. And, you know, he gave me the rap of a lifetime. He said, you, you will be touring the largest arenas in the world. He said, you will be fucking the, the biggest rock stars in the world. Um, you'll be playing the best guitars in the world. And I'm thinking, geez, this sounds like too good to be true. I don't know how I'm going to turn this down. And, you know, at the same time, he was very eccentric and and bizarre sounding on the phone. And uh, he had heard from some friends of mine that I was a bass player. And I had filled in for this girl who was playing bass. Her boyfriend didn't want her to go that night. So she didn't go, and I ended up sitting in for her. I don't know how to play bass. I mean, I can play bass now, but back then, I wasn't a bass player. So this band talked me into playing bass, and they said, Lita, you can do this, because it's just two less strings. So we know you can do it. And I thought, well, I guess I can't argue with that. So I went in and played bass, and the next thing I know, Kim Fowley hears about it, and he comes, calls me on the phone and, and says they need a bass player. And I said, um, well, I don't play bass. I play guitar. And he says, well, we need one of those, too. We need one of them. So anyway, the, the conversation went on, and I hung up the phone and talked to my parents and said, Mom, Dad, I just got a phone call from this weird guy, and this is what he said to me. My parents said to me, get in your car and go down there now. I mean, usually it would be, mom and dad would be, oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to talk to him and I want to see a picture of him or something. I mean, just more, you know, be a little bit more careful. But they practically shoved me in the car and said, get your gear and get down there. And uh, by this time, I did have a half stack Marshall and uh, I had my chocolate SG and that was all I had I put it in the back seat of a El Camino is El Camino El Camino not not the ones with the little pickup truck um Monte Carlo it was a Monte Carlo that was it either one's cool shit I put it in the back seat of my Monte Carlo and I drove to Los Angeles and auditioned for the runaways and my parents just pushed me all the way do it go that's awesome. They had such faith in you. And speaking of Marshall, we got to take a little break here. Nick Bocott in the house. What's happening, Nick? Well, living the dream, my friend. <laughs> the dream. Hi, Nick. You, you live in LA these days? No, just passing through. Oh, cool. This is great. What's happening, dude? 
What brings you to town? Just hanging out? You'll talk them to Yeah, yeah. To <laughs> <reasons>. <laughs> right there. That's a good reason. Well, I've just interrupted it, so I apologize. Yeah. No, not at all. No. It's, a free, it's a free for all. Yeah, I brought a code for Lita to try out. I can't really. wait. It's got awesome. some programs written with her in mind, so hopefully she'll like it. We'll find out. Badass. Well, very excited. Leaving in tears, I <laughs> That yeah. won't happen. What's the serial number on your Gibson? This one is 021025. Not too bad, considering what some of them are. Yeah, I mean, it's like a 2004 or so. The guys went to Gibson when we were in Memphis. We just came from Memphis, yeah. and uh, I had interviews, so... I had to do the interviews and got got left behind. But I went to Sun Studio where Elvis recorded the Beatles, the Stones. I swore the hair on my arms was standing up when I walked in that place. It it just has vibes to it. Very cool place. Really nice people. So yeah, I have to agree with you on that. I went there about four years ago with Jerry Abbott, Daryl's dad. Oh yeah. He wanted to show me that place and you feel a presence there. You feel it. It's weird. Yeah, his soul, somebody's soul. I think it's Elvis. Yeah, it's yeah. there. You're standing where greatness was born, literally. Yes. Or created, I should say. It wasn't right. born, someone yeah. created it. I took a picture of me, st- and I'm, I'm holding a Gibson. Since I didn't make the Gibson trip, I was holding one of the Gibsons. But I'm standing right there by the photograph, and you can see in the photograph that where I'm standing is in the photograph that I'm... And I didn't know it. And Marty pointed it out, our bass player. He says, do you realize you're standing right where they took this picture? And that's, that's when I realized that's why I felt. I felt their, their presence. Literally, you feel their presence. And they have a tape recorder, uh, a record player, or tape recorder. They have a record replay, a player, and they play him talking, trying to get the tapes rolling. I, go, I think I'm going to sing this now. And... You know, you can hear the bass, upright bass, tuning up, and it's just so awesome. That is awesome. You know, the only moment I could compare to that was going to Abbey Road Studios in London, and they're like, that's the piano Paul played Lady Madonna on. So I'm out there playing it on it with one finger. Such a feeling to be right in that spot. And to see the actual machine they did the Beatles records on, it's still there. You can still rent it. They keep it maintained in working order. Of course, nobody wants a four-track recorder, but you could. The stuff they had at the Sun Studio, I wouldn't know what to do with it. It was so old. Hey, everybody, just to cut in here, I want to give you a taste of what happened when Nick brought out the little amplifier, the Code 25. It started with a great story about being on a boat with that amplifier and one Ingve J. Malmsteen. It's funny, I did the, um, I was fortunate that I was an MC on the Axis and Anchors cruise. And Ingve was on it. Uh, and Ingve had like he was upset because they wouldn't let him triple head they wouldn't they wouldn't let him triple head the, the cabinets oh, because of the ship moving. The ship would sink. So but he had like thirty two cabinets and twenty four heads. And he saw me walking up to the main stage carrying that and he goes, Hey Nick, what are you doing? <laughs> like oh, I'm gonna do my dime tribute because with that because you got this four marshals up there you fucking idiot. <laughs> like yeah, there's like a hundred in there. He goes yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> Afterwards he's like Nick, yeah, give me the app. <laughs> I'll put it behind the stack. That's really funny. I love that. I love him. He makes me laugh. You know what? I have always gotten along with him too. He gave me a guitar, and everyone else is cussing him out. And then we proceeded to go down a 
deep rabbit hole with that amp because it's so cool. It's 25 watts, 10 inch speaker. There are bigger versions available. The code amp, code 25 from Marshall has like a hundred presets. You can store all your different settings in there. Really hip feature that you can control it effortlessly from your phone, your Android or your iPhone. That's even easier than using the knobs in my opinion. But best of all, it has these killer tones. Yeah, Nick was taking us uh, through some different rock sounds. And it's got tons of different effects too. Now let's get back to our interview with the great Lita Ford. So you are just completely rocking here in 2016, 2017. You got so much going on. Oh, we've been busy. We've had a really great year. Yeah, I know your drummer too, Bobby Rock. I played with him. Oh, yeah. And Stuart Ham. yeah. Yeah, Bobby is such a cool guy, man. I love playing with him. He's the best. Such a great drummer, too, man. Oh, ferocious. I always tell this story about Bobby because we had a drummer for a while, and his girlfriend took him away from the band. And uh, it was kind of screwed up on his behalf because we had three months off. And then in three days from that day, we were going to have our first show so we needed the drummer. We were in rehearsals and, you know, gearing up to leave. All of a sudden, he doesn't show up. He disappears. His girlfriend had talked him into moving to Las Vegas, but he didn't tell anybody. So we didn't have a drummer. And I, I said, why don't you just say something? Just tell us. It's all. And it's not a big deal. Well, I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't know if I was going to stay. And I'm like, well, when were you going to figure it out? We got a show in three days. So I called the Nelson brothers, Gunnar and Matthew Nelson, and uh, who are good friends. I called everybody. You guys got a drummer? Do anybody know a drummer? And it has to be the right drummer. It can't just be a drummer. You know, it has to fit. So uh, Gunnar and Matthew said, yeah. Lita, we know, and we, they know me. They've known me since I was early 80s. We've known each other. We're like brothers, sisters, buddies. So he says, have you heard of Bobby Rock? I said, yeah, but I'm not real familiar with his playing. It, it, it's, it doesn't ring a bell. I said, does he need to audition? And they said, fuck no, he, it's Bobby Rock. Are you kidding? So I said, okay. Well, let's bring him down and let him play. And at the same time, I'm biting my fingernails thinking, I hope they're right. And sure enough, he came in. Everything was charted out. It was ridiculous. His meter is perfect on every song. You know, some drummers have one meter, and they play that for every song. Every song is the same meter. Kiss Me Deadly is the same meter as Back to the Cave, which doesn't work. But with Bobby, he gets that feel and he gets that meter in there yeah i get the warm and fuzzies from bobby's playing and he's just a great player great feel on every tune and he has that one drum kit that's got a million drums on it crazy yeah totally well congratulations on finding him oh yeah i've got a great band i love him so here it is 2016 and you have a new release that's actually an old collection of tunes from back in the day. I think it's called Time Capsule. Could you maybe tell us about it? A little? Oh, I'd love to. Um, 
that was a gift I wanted to give to the fans. It it was analog recording that has it's just been sitting on my shelf doing nothing, collecting dust. And I thought the fans need to hear this because there's so many great musicians on it. First of all, we've got Cheap Trick, the Rick and Robin from Cheap Trick, um, Dave Navarro, Billy Sheehan's playing bass on some stuff. Um, Gene Simmons is playing bass on one song. It just the list goes on and on and on. And I wanted to share it with the fans. It's analog. Everything was trans- transferred over to digital and remixed. So we put it out as Lita Ford's time capsule because it really is a time capsule. Totally. But the songs are great. The music was great. The engineer was George Tutko, who did the Lita, Lita album with Kiss Me Deadly, Close My Eyes, you know, the, the big Lita album. So we've got him engineering it. I produced it on some downtime. We went in the studio and just had fun for a while. And I kept all the analog tapes. It's amazing. You know, they sound like full-fledged, high-production-value album tracks. And you just had them lying around. What goes into reviving stuff off of old tape? That's bizarre. You have to bake it. Otherwise, there's the chance that it might fall apart. You know, it starts to flake. I know um, people like Paul McCartney or the older celebrities singers and songwriters would probably bake their equipment, bake their tapes before they start to transfer it over to digital, or you just lose everything. So we baked it, make sure we didn't lose it. And then even the baking process is dangerous because you can screw it up in the baking process. So everything came out great. We, we put together a really nice little package for everyone to listen to. The songs are great. Yeah, it sounds immaculate. Maybe we could listen to a tune right here, you know? Sure, I'd love to. I did a duet with Jeff Scott Soto, and this was during his prime. His voice sounded just amazing. And the song was called Where Do Do I Find My Heart Tonight? But we used to call it Where Did I Park My Car Last Night? So it was kind of a, you know, at the moment, 80s was... You know, where did I park my car last night? It wasn't such an uncommon thing. So we made fun out of that song. Well, it sounds incredible. Now, that one starts off with a 12-string, right? because we we went in and did it for fun. We didn't do it for any other reason. We didn't do it for the record company. And back in those days, for an artist to go in and want to produce her own record was absolutely forbidden. There's no way I could have gone in and done my own stuff. They wouldn't have let me. But what happened was that song was taken to the Rob Brothers that ran Cherokee Studios. And they were going to redo that song. 
But that little guitar part in the beginning and the mandolin, Rick and Robin singing backup, they took it all out. And it wasn't there, so they basically destroyed the song. It came out to sound like a completely different song, changed the drum pattern, and it just didn't have that magic feel to it like that one did when you started it. Sounds really huge, great tune. Yeah, that's a killer song. You even have Little Wing on Time Capsule. Little Hendrix action. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a jam. So, circling back to age 16, this producer, Kim Fowley, producer of The Runaways, what did you uh, learn from him, positive and even negative, either or? Uh, Kim Fowley was... You know, the, the thing with him and I, we got along. We got along quite well. He never messed with me and never gave me a hard time. Whereas some of the other girls, he would make fun of them and push them around a little bit more than me. Because if he pushed me around, I would pick up a martial head and throw it at him. And he knew that. And uh, everyone was always saying, oh, Lita's so mean. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to put him in his place. And he... He, he understood, I understood him. So he was trying to teach the band choreography. Like, for instance, don't just get on a stage and stand there, you know? Move around together. Move as a unit. Show us, give us a show. And uh, he was trying to pretend like he was on stage moving around. And he would do stuff like lick his finger, put it on his butt, and go, And it was ridiculous, but I understood what he was trying to say, you know, in his own wacky language, this purple suit and brown suit or whatever it was. I got it. I understood. And then we hired Kenny Ortega, who actually is one of the top um, choreographers. He he choreographed uh, Michael Jackson and... um, all the biggest bands that are around today, the Cheetah Girls, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on, people he choreographed. And one thing he told me, Kenny Ortega, was always sing to the people in the back of the room. Don't look down, don't sing to the people in the front row. Like, I do that too, but you gotta project yourself to the entire place, people up on the balconies, people in the back of the room, even if you can't see them, even if it's a short room or little room, pretend like it's a big room and make the movements big. And he said also, there's nothing more powerful than just standing there with a pose. Don't move. And people go nuts. And Michael Jackson used to do that. He would flop his shirt over one shoulder and he would stand there with his legs spread and just look at you in the audience and people would cry because it's such a powerful thing. So sometimes less is more, you know, than just going crazy and headbanging all the, all the show. 
And what about, I mean, obviously he succeeded in constructing a hit song with you guys. Did you learn about song construction? I mean, you were so young. You were 16, 17? I didn't know how to write a song when I was 16. Um, Cherry Bomb was written for Cherie. He wanted Cherie in the band. Cherie was the youngest, and I understand why, because she has a look to her, and she wasn't an amazingly awesome singer, like... uh, Oh my God, this girl sings so, so well. We, we have to go see the band. It wasn't about that. It was more about the nostalgia of being teenagers in an all-girl band. And we were troublemakers, we were jailbait, underage, trouble punks. We lived up to our reputation. We had to have adult supervision, you know. And Cherry Bomb was written for Cherie to come in to audition because when she came into the Runaways she didn't really know hard rock Sandy and I are playing Highway Star and Cherie wanted to play something Feelings and I don't know who sings that it's Feelings nothing and I said I'm not playing that. I remember specifically saying, I'm not playing that, because I think that was what my mother and father were listening to. And uh, she couldn't figure it out. Why not? So Kim says, I have an idea how to resolve this. He took Joan, and they went in the other room, and he said, you girls just wait here for a a few minutes. And he went in the other room, and they came back out with Cherry Bomb. And she sang Cherry Bomb. That was it. Problem solved. So he says to Joan, you play this. Do, 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 Right? So she's... Plays that. And there we have Cherry Bomb. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Mom. I'm your Cherry Bomb. Then it modulates. It modulates a whole step. (laughs) You're doing it to this day, I guess, because you soon emerged as a lead singer in your own right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was just in the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's platinum, platinum album, and uh, nominated for a Grammy after 37 years. Oh, really? So, like, out of which category? Um, God, I don't know. Probably. Movie soundtrack or something? Yeah, yeah. Movie soundtrack. Well, but I don't know if it was hard rock or... Well, people, you just got to read this book. Now, if I ask you, what was the craziest moment in The Runaways? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? In The Runaways? I know there's a lot to choose from. Oh, boy. What pops into your head? Uh, sexy, drugs, or rock and roll? Anything. Anything. Um, you know, it. well, let me just say this, because there's so much that's hard to... You're right, it is hard to choose one thing. The book... It, it takes off in, in this, this beautiful love story about my parents and how they met. And then I get into the runaways, and the runaways go to Japan. And when you're done reading that whole episode about the runaways going to Japan, I feel like my, my life had just begun. 
or we had lived an entire lifetime by the time I was almost 19 years old, coming back from Japan, I was ready to rock. But we had lived so much in just that short period of time. That's absolutely true. World tours, hit songs, you met so many rock and rollers. I understand one of your heroes saw a picture of you with a poster of him on your wall, Richie Blackmore. <laughs> Maybe you could talk about meeting Richie and uh, playing guitar with him. You must have started off playing guitar together, right? Well, Kim introduced Richie to me, actually. Kim gave Richie my phone number, and he calls me, and I flipped out because I, I idolize Richie Blackmore. He was my favorite guitar player on the planet. And there he was on my phone. Like, Mom, it's Richie Blackmore. He's on my phone. So he invites me over to his house. And um, it was just wonderful meeting him because he he's such a mysterious soul. You know, he's such an incredible musician. He played cello for me. He got out this big, beautiful, upright cello. And I didn't know he could play like that. So that was just awesome. And he showed me uh, Snake Charmer. You know, like slinky kind of minor scales. And uh, that was awesome. Just laid back, not real fast playing, but uh, had so much feel. And he also showed me how to crack an egg with one hand. (laughs) <laughs> you know, rather than going and then going like that, he showed me you do it with one hand and then pull it apart. And with no sorcery involved, just one hand? Just one hand, yeah. That and a frying did you pan. Get that, did you get that crazy pick from him, too? I did. Carbon fiber. Show us this. I did. He gave me... It's like a home plate. It's shaped like home plate from a baseball game. It's made by Pick Boy. Um, they're from Japan, these particular ones. And... Um, he gave me one in the early Runaways days, and it meant so much to me that I used it for three months on the road with the Ramones. I used one pick. And when we were done with the show, I would put it in my mouth like chewing tobacco, and I would keep it between my teeth and my cheek, like, you know, so I wouldn't lose it. It wouldn't drop. If I changed my clothes or went to the restroom or anything like that, and I would keep it in my jewelry box and uh, didn't want to lose it. But by the end of the tour, the whole end of the pick was gone. It was round. It's such a, there's no shape like it. Can I take a photo of sure. you Do with it? Do we have it? any more? We really don't give them away, but. Oh, spectacular. I can have this? Sure. Yeah. But we don't give them away. It's funny because people are always asking, give me a pick. And I say to them, no. (laughs) Oh, it actually feels really good. Great for like little little pick harmonics. Oh, yeah. It really takes a lot to tear them up, too. So if you do a slide or anything down the neck. Oh, is this actually one of the carbon fiber ones? That isn't. But it's just as good. They don't tear up. Yeah, they don't tear up at all. You can do pick slides, hours. And you got to meet, obviously, and become friends with, and I guess sometimes maybe more than friends with in a couple of cases. And again, I commend you for sharing everything and being so open about everything in your book. Thank you. Some of these wonderful legends, 
for example, if I were to ask you, did you ever learn a guitar lesson or anything guitar imparted to you from Eddie Van Halen in terms of music? Obviously, there's some hilarious party uh, stories, but you play with him once or twice? Well, he was a friend of mine. and We hung out. We partied and, you know, did the whole nine yards. But there was one part that came in the early 90s, I believe, when Jennifer Batten had left Michael Jackson and they didn't have anybody to replace her. The only people, the only person they could think of was Lita. They got to replace her with Lita. There was nobody else. Who, who are we going to use? So um, I went to Edward Van Halen and their, their choice of songs was, was Eat It. It's Eat It where he plays a solo. Yeah. Beat It, not Eat It. That's Weird Al. But what happened with, with Eat It was I, I got really angry at Michael Jackson. So to kill the anger, I went out and bought Eat It, the Weird Al version of Beat It. So uh, anyway, Edward Van Halen showed me the solo for um, Beat It, which is just, what do you say? It's just C-D-E, Lita. That's all it is. It's just C-D-E, but he's doing the hammer-ons. And I thought, well, that's a little bit more than just C-D-E. But I went home and practiced, got it down, kicked ass in rehearsal. But the problem was is um, Michael Jackson didn't want anybody that had any kind of a name. And at that time, we were, we were huge in the music industry. There weren't any, really any other females. So they didn't use me. And they didn't tell me. I had to hear it on the street which this is why I went and bought Eat It, because I was angry. <laughs> Isn't that weird how somebody won't say it? I mean, they'll say it to everybody else except to that person's face. Just call the manager and tell them. It's not going to work. Thank you. Bye. Click. I mean, that was all it would have took. We don't need an explanation. Just, you know. But Dave Williams, God rest his soul. It's the only reason I can say this now. And he begged me not to say it. And I say this in my book is um, he asked me, don't repeat this, but the only reason they don't want you, he doesn't want you in the band, is because you have a name. And he doesn't want anybody that has a name. But if anyone finds out that I'm the one that told you this, I will lose my job, and I don't want to lose my job. I said, I won't say nothing, Dave. You can trust me. And I never did, so... He was a the good guy. The statute of limitations is all good now. You're all good. Yeah. But I mean, I needed to know. And he, he just confirmed it with me and made me feel better. And, you know, it's one of those things that kind of eats away at you for years. And it did. It was great of him, friend to another friend, to share that with you. Yeah. I know Michael adored him, too. I think uh, he was Michael's favorite guitar player. I think he did the, like, the little funky stuff on those tracks, like on Billy Jean. <laughs> Not the right tone, but you know that part. Right, right. He was just such a funky... Ah. You were friends with him. You were friends with so many great players. Pretty much everyone in Hollywood and still to this day. It's really wild. Love to talk to you about a couple other players, maybe? I don't know. Iomi? You finally meet. That'd be, for me, like meeting Angus and Malcolm... Because ACDC was yeah. my first concert. What was that whole thing like? Um, and did you do much guitar with him, too? Oh, yeah, we did. We played guitar quite a lot together. I mean, I already knew all his licks because I grew up on Sabbath. 
you know, um, anything they had out on vinyl, I knew. I learned it right away. And he's the king of riffs. Just badass, nasty, dark. That was the stuff I liked. You know, that's what separated me from from Joan Jett when the Runaways broke up is she liked a particular type of music and I liked a particular type of music so we both went in our different directions but uh, Tony and I got got along well at first and uh, we, we did play together at first and then things went south as any relationship you know when you end up breaking up doesn't work out yeah, that was a pretty heavy one. It was a heavy one. No pun intended. Totally. Speaking of heavy, yeah. what did you take away from him after getting to know him up close as a guitar player, as a musician? Wow, I don't know. Um, I think he had his own demons and his own battles to fight before he could deal with anything else. He needed to clean up. He knows it. He'd be the first to say it. He needed to clean up. He was like Elvis Presley with his mass quantities of drugs, you know? Because of, he, of who he was, he could get whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, you know, ridiculous amounts of it. He had to probably fight to not get it. It was probably just pouring in, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's hard to turn people away and just... I remember the day... I actually went sober, clean and sober. I'd stayed up all night. It was three o'clock the next afternoon, and I had been up all night. I looked at myself in the mirror, and my mother had just passed away. And I was basically drowning my sorrows with drugs and alcohol. I looked at myself in the mirror, and I said to myself, you can either go one way or another. You can get clean and get sober, or you can just overdose and die. You can do one or the other. And your mother and father didn't raise you to act like this. This is not the person they raised you to be. So I took my drugs and I took my alcohol. I put it in a box out for the trash man to take the next morning. But he must have scored with that trash bo that box. But I, I didn't do it again. I didn't touch it again. That was it. Now I can have a shot of vodka or I could have a glass of wine and not go overboard with it. But back then, I, I could have killed myself very easily, you know, with the loss of, of my parents and access to drugs. But lost a lot of friends. They didn't want to know me anymore. You know, a friend would call and say, hey, let's go get fucked up, man. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And I said, no, I, I can't. I, I've got to meet my trainer at six o'clock. We're going to go run. And they'd, they'd say, you know, they, they'd think I was stupid. Yeah, that's like the opposite world right there. Crazy. I'm like, you know what? If you don't like me because I, I want to go jogging, then, you know, my friend. It's uh, one of those changes in life, I guess, where you really find out who your true friends really are. It really is. really is. Well, maybe we could listen to a little bit of Kiss Me Deadly. That's a great tune. You really rock out on that on the end. Do you stretch that out live in your set? <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. Yeah, it's a big... It's a big ending song, you know? It's like fireworks should be going off and stuff. So we do stretch it out. <laughs> Thank you. 
voice going. You gotta hit 11. So we look at each other and we go. I've noticed that odd numbers are imperative at the end. You do an even number, it's not good. You always gotta do like. Or seven. That's so funny. Oh, I remember when we, when we first wrote that ending. And uh, actually, we might play this at the She Rocks Awards because there's, there's so many people jamming at the end that we can fit everybody in at the end of this song. But uh, we told Bobby, um, yeah, let's, let's do 11. And uh, Bobby says, 11? Why would you want to do 11? I said, because it's, it's grandioso. It's, it's huge. Let's make it huge. Let's make it a big ending. That is a great song to have, like, a whole bunch of people just going crazy on. Yeah. You, know. you can put keyboards on it or guitars or whoever's playing. And when, when I learned to sing it, what was funny was Mike Chapman, who produced it, said to me, Lita, sing the, come on, pretty baby. He said, sing it like Elvis. It's awesome. I was like, really? You want me to sing it like Elvis? You said, should I curl the lip and everything? Yeah, curl the lip. <laughs> Come on, pretty baby. So every time I sing that, I, th- I think of that time we were in the studio recording this song. That's of awesome. Of course, Elvis Presley. You're channeling it. Good person to channel. Definitely. Now, since you mentioned it, congratulations on being the uh, 2017 one of these award winners at uh, She Rocks. Oh, that's so huge, excited. Such a great event. I've been there a couple of times, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. Laura Whitmore does a great job organizing the whole thing. Huge screens. like it's a, It feels like oh. it's cool, and the house band should be great. I'm not sure who she has this year. but Nice. Kat Dyson nice. was doing it last year. She was on this podcast, too. Kat Dyson, the guitarist, was in the house band. Oh, yeah. They did a great job. It'd be wonderful if you had them. I'm not sure, but it's a great oh, moment. I'll find out. Yeah. And you can tell a little story. Of what it, it's just a great vibe. It's, it's incredible. Well, there, there's so much to tell, you know, and we've come so far with the runaways and growing up in the streets yeah. of Hollywood. And it's just so much to tell. Well, yeah, it's endless. You know? That's a huge award. You also got a GP Le- Legend Award, Guitar Player Magazine. Yes, I did. And that's in my book. Yeah, your friend of mine, Mike Melinda, presented it to you, I believe, yes. at the Whiskey one night or something? Yeah, they present, he presented it to me at a weird place, but I told Bobby, could be, the night they wanted to present it to me, we were getting on a plane and flying to South America, and I said to him, I am not missing this award. I don't care where we're flying. I said, this is huge for me. You know how long it's taken me to get this yeah. far? And he's like, well, we have to get on a plane. I'm sorry, we're getting on a plane. I said, well, let's pick another time. It's coming up in the future. And then that thing came up at the whiskey, and it just, I don't know, it wasn't the right, the right thing at the right time. That's how I felt about it. So I wanted to give Guitar Player Magazine, and I wanted to give Mike Melinda and everyone at Guitar Player Magazine a big thank you in my book. 
Well, we appreciate that for sure. Right on. Yeah, it is a big moment. I think there's a, is there a photo of it or something? I can't remember. Probably. Some, I can't remember either. There's some great photos in that, in that book. Cool. So let's see there. You've done so much. Like maybe you could tell us about working with Ozzy and that, creating that song, Close My Eyes Forever. <clears throat> yeah, that was a, a very interesting time in my life. Um, I didn't have a manager at the time and I didn't have a record company. Um, I was pretty much alone in the world after leaving the Runaways and I wanted to really find a manager who could understand me as a female artist because back then it just wasn't recognized. People didn't recognize women in, in hard rock. Um, so I figured Sharon Osbourne who else other than Sharon Osbourne? I gave her a call sitting at a bar in the Queen Mary. I was drinking Bloody Marys and doing oyster shooters in the Bloody, <laughs> in the uh, drinking Bloody Marys, and um, gave her a call, and I said, Sharon, and I gave her this whole rap, this whole speech. Would you please manage me? And she says. Yes, of course. I can never remember, never forget that no, that little voice of hers. Yeah. Yes, and um, I already had Mike Chapman. We were already working on an album. I already had a record deal. I just needed a manager, and I didn't want a manager at first. I wanted to be able to do my album find the record producer I wanted and not have an, a manager come in and influence me and say, no, you don't want to use them. You want to use this guy. Because sometimes they get in the way of your creativity, you know. And um, I had recently worked with managers that did get in the way of my creativity. And I didn't like it. So when Sharon came on board, she really took me to the next level which is what exactly what I wanted, which included Ozzy. And yeah. um, my real relationship was with Sharon. But Ozzy and I ended up writing this top 10 hit single, his first top 10 hit single of yes. all things. And you guys just fired that off in like an hour or something? Or how did it go? Well, I think the real reason why it was his well, why it was my top 10 hit single and not his is because it was that whole black sabbath dark deep you know let's not play this on the radio it's too dark and it's too deep whereas now it's fine but today in this day and day and era you know it's okay but back then anything that was so dark couldn't be pushed up that high on the radio so because i did it it gave it a little bit of an okayness you know yeah <laughs> so it was top 10 which was a huge huge compliment it's yeah it's huge a milestone very well constructed song you know the way the verse moves into the chorus If I close my eyes forever, will it all remain unchanged? 
It's so many people love that song. I don't have to sing it when we play it live. That's the ultimate the test of a song. Just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the right. The crowd can sing all the lyrics. It's true. It's got a cool bridge. With, oh, it's uh, so powerful. It's so dynamic. Harmonies. Did you play both parts on the record or in the harmony? Or? I did, yes. Yeah. And it's funny because 10 years after that song was released, people were still asking me, oh, great song, Lita. Who played guitar on it? That's crazy. Thinking, are you kidding me? It's 10 years later and you still get, you didn't get it yet? You still don't get it. And I'm like... I just didn't know if you had done the harmony part, you know, as an overdub. I figured you did all the guitars on it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny. People start thinking, you know, that's when it's a huge song, when people are thinking of you as a singer, even not even necessarily realizing that you play the guitars on that because they just know the song because it's so big. They always label me as a singer first. That's Always. Funny. Well, guitar player, you know, whether it's guitar player magazine readers or guitar players, we know who you are. Right on. When did you realize that you were kind of a pioneer in terms of being a female guitar hero and virtuoso? Mm. And because it's, I know that you started off, it, just, it was just the love. Yeah. It was, seems like it came much later. And then how do you feel nowadays when you see... All it takes is one look at YouTube or anything or any, you know, any big guitar company. There's so many women that are blazing on guitar. Yeah. But how, did, yeah. like when you're going to accept this award at the She Rocks Awards, what's going to be going through your mind and heart about all of this? I'm going to have to write a, write a lot of it down. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think um, I, I've always been an, a sort of a child prodigy on guitar, a pro, protege for a lot of people. Because I remember sitting around my mother and father's living room at age 13 when all the neighbors would come over and sit around and watch me play. They were all mesmerized. And I would ask them, why are you guys staring at me? (laughs) And they would say, how do you do that? I would look around and say, do what? They would say, play guitar like that. And I would say, well, why can't you do this? What's stopping you from doing it? I didn't get it, you know? I mean, I had all these guys from school that would come over and hang with me. We were buddies. Everywhere I went, they'd go. And we would jam. That's all we wanted to do was jam. We didn't care where we were or whose house we were in. We just wanted to play. <laughs> You're a player to the core. It's in I our really. blood. You know what song I really love is uh, Living Like a Runaway. That is a really, that, that you know, that's like... Lita's life flashing before our eyes in the lyrics and yeah. then this beautiful music going along with it. How did you approach the production on that song? All kinds of wacky stuff's going on these days. Well, Gary Hoey produced that album. Yes. You know, and uh, I was at a point in time in my life where I had been disconnected from everybody and everything. 
I raised two boys on a deserted island. I didn't know what was going on in the music industry. And I didn't care. I knew that I just needed to be me. And that's what I did with Living Like a Runaway. And Gary Hoey brought that to life. He knew that that's what I needed to do too. And uh, if I would say to him, run baby, run, Gary would say, cross New York City. You know, and we would answer each other and uh, we were perfect for each other. We just locked ourselves in his studio for one year and we wrote the entire album together. There was stuff I had him doing. He said to me, Lita, I've never done this before. And I said, yeah, and? But I've never done it before. Okay, well, <laughs> next thing you know, it's done. I can't believe, I can't believe I just did that. That is so cool. Like for instance, uh, when Clarence Clemens died, we needed saxophone on the bitch's back. And uh, Clarence passed away. I couldn't believe it. So I said to Gary, you know any horn players? He said, you know, I was in New York the other day and somebody gave me a card. He said, let me ask my wife if she still has the card. So she comes in the studio a few minutes later. She's got this card. I give it to Gary, and it turns out it was the Uptown Horns. And the Uptown Horns had played with the Rolling Stones. They have a huge list, huge roster of people that they played with. And uh, I'm freaking out, thinking, oh my God, there they are, get them. It's a three-piece horn section on the record, and there was three of them. It was perfect. So Gary gets on the phone, and he calls one of the guys from the Uptown Horns, and he says to them, well, I'm in a weird place in Pelham, uh, uh, New Hampshire, and um, they said, he has a, a Arsno, I believe hmm. his name, very, very oh, strange okay. name. It turns out he was seven minutes down the street from where we were. How bizarre. So Gary says, we're at Wazoo Studios. Can you come over and put a track down on the bitch's back? And he said, yeah, we'll see you at 4 o'clock. On the way to the airport. Unbelievable. That's great. Unbelievable. So they came over and they, they did the, the, um, the horn section on the bitch's back. And Gary's, I don't know how to do this. I've never recorded horns before. I said, Gary, they'll know what to do. And they did. Fantastic. So we left off at Sharon Osbourne, I think. Ozzy. The curiosity was, what was it, what was it like working with Ozzy and the creative process? And what's he like in that capacity? He has so many different sides to his personality, but... Well, uh, in my book, I talk about his business side and his screw-around side. And I really never saw the screw-around screw side of Ozzy. He came to my mother and father's house for dinner. He got drunk. He enjoyed himself. He didn't do anything stupid or, you know, out of, out of place. Sharon uh, had accused him of being with other women. I never saw him with other women. I think she thought I was one of them. 
which really put a damper on our relationship, but I was not one of them. And um, she wanted to keep us, she wanted to keep us separate in the video. If you look at the video, it looks like, it looks like we're in separate rooms, but we're not. We're actually in the same room, but I'm on the floor and he's, we're in a train station where the trains pull up and everyone gets out. So it has a very high ceiling and I'm sitting on the floor and he's up in this tower, which is really, I mean, I don't know, 40 feet high and he's in this little tower and they've got it lit up. So unless the camera actually pans back, you can't tell that we're in the same room. And a lot of people have asked me, are you in the same room as Ozzy? And I say, yeah, I'm in, the, I'm in the same room. But she didn't want us together. She didn't want us, you know, to seem like it's a duet. Right. You know, she just did not want us together. And uh, she was asking me silly questions about, um, I went to Washington, D.C. And when I got back, I found a tampon under Ozzy's bed. It wasn't yours, was it? And I'm thinking, what? Are you fucking kidding me? It's not mine. Why would she ask me that? And it wouldn't dawn on me until years later. I would think, does she think that was mine? I mean, she must have to have asked me that question. Does wow. she really think that I would have done something with him? And in my book, I, again, I say, I, I say I loved her. I love Sharon. I would never have done that to her. So maybe that gave her some peace of mind to read that and know that. Well, she seemed like she really helped you a lot when she came on board. Really, she knew what to do and got you boosted up in a lot of ways. Well, her father was um, the El Capone of rock and roll, you know, Don Arden. He was the one who dangled everybody out the hotel room windows (laughs) by their toes for money. And she was just a little girl watching this stuff. So she learned from her father how to be a manager. And uh, she doesn't really need to manage anybody else other than her husband. Well, you, what a score for you to have her manage you. I think that, yeah. you, you know, regardless of how it ended or got weird, <laughs> really it really paid off in a lot of ways. Yeah, it did. It really did. And I remember walking around the airport uh, Asking, she was asking me, "What does John Bon Jovi smell like?" You know, we had just spent the night together. What does he smell like? I don't know. Let's go to a perfume counter. So we would go to the men's cologne section, and (laughs) her and I would smell stuff. And I would say, "Oh, he smells like this." No, he smells like this. No, wait, I think he smells like this. I mean, it would just get all confusing. But, you know, we, we did spend some girl time together. We had some girl time. Yet again, you got to read this book, people. I'm telling you. It's all in there. Yeah. Now, it tell really me, is. There's a great musical moment in there, Wembley Arena, speaking of Bon Jovi. What, tell me about that show. Who was on stage and what were you doing and what concert was that? Yeah, that was a crazy show. That was during the New Jersey Syndicate tour. And, uh, you know, Bon Jovi had out the the hits and we were filling arenas and um one night he always had guests on stage didn't matter who they were but he always had a couple of Beatles songs in his back pocket so if anybody showed up at the show he could always invite them on stage and he knew who they were they knew the songs they knew how the songs went 
and uh, Elton John shows up, and uh, Rick Allen from Def Leppard shows up, Brian May shows up, and I'm there. And he says to me, do you want to get on stage and jam a Beatles song with Elton John, Rick Allen, and Brian May? And I thought, oh my God, at Wembley Arena, this is, this is insane. I'm freaking out. And uh, I said, what key? What key is it? And he says, oh, it's in the key of B. And I started it in what they told me was the key of B. It turns out it wasn't in the key of B. You can't trust a singer in the key. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And I even went backstage to my guitar player, and I said, just run over. I forgot it was Come Together or something. I don't remember. But Come Together, whatever song it was. I said, just run over it with me. And uh, we sat down, and we ran over it. And then I went and jumped up on the stage and started the song. Well, it turned out that the very first chord I hit was the wrong chord. And Brian May turned around and looked at me and gave me the look of death. Oh man. Like you dumb bitch, I'm going to kill you. And I'm like, "Hey, I'm just doing what I was told, you know. I uh, I I always heard that rumor that if you make a mistake on stage, you never let them see you see you sweat. You never let them see that face." Well, he let everybody see that face. And uh, I backed away from him and, and just changed. I automatically transposed the key to what yeah. they were playing in, and everything was fine. I mean, nobody heard that first chord. Nobody heard it but me and Brian. You know, yeah. it was that quick. And ever since then, I just thought, wow, he's really arrogant. Just He, he, he is, and everything I've seen him in, he seems to be become over the years seems to have become kind of an arrogant guy but that was upsetting because i i loved him and i worshiped the ground he walked on i mean who doesn't love queen my god Uh, well that's the thing like how do you uh, get through those every one of us has had that on stage where something goes wrong maybe even in the first bar yeah you break a string or someone throws something or, or anything and but you just gotta keep playing through it, right? How do you how do you shake it off and still have a great song? You just don't let it show. You know, my mother used to tell me again in that thick Italian accent. She would just tell me, "Never let them see you sweat. Don't ever let them see you look like a broken down Cinderella." She would tell me. So I would keep a poker face. Nobody knew. Nobody would hear anything. You know. Right. What, what rig are you running these days with uh, on your solo tours? Um, I've got the Marshall DSL 100, which I love. It is That's the ballsiest, amp. most ferocious. It's got that 800 DSL, uh, 800 hiss. You know, when you turn it on and crank yeah. it up, it just sounds like it's going to take your head off. You know it's going to take your head off. Totally. And then uh, I've got the Jerry Cantrell Wah, Echoplex. Um, and then I don't know what the delay pedal is. Do you? It's just a delay, uh, uh, not a delay right. pedal. Is it a, a volume Dunlop thing? Oh, cool. Volume pedal, Dunlop volume pedal. Very so cool. the Echoplex, Dunlop volume pedal, and the Jerry Cantrell. And I can do without any of it. I'm fine. Right. The DSL is a great clean channel too. If like even if you push in that little button, you get the uh, really the nice. overdrive, but it's not like it's just toothy. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's cool. What's your main go-to guitar? Um, I use my old Warlocks, my old Mockingbirds, and my old Rich Bitch Double Neck, the original prototype. Right. Can't believe, yeah, so cool you have those. I mean, those are some killer guitars. They're, they're legendary. Nothing can sound like those guitars. They just, they're evil. They sound mean when you want them to sound mean. They're just such powerful guitars. It seems like they just can't make them anymore. You know, it's like an old car. You find an old car that you love. Like, they don't make cars like this anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of the That's same great. thing. Well, cool. I was wondering if maybe we could take it out on a little jam. Song. Yeah, sure. Let me get, get this over here. Thank you so much for taking the time of and coming course. through. It was my pleasure. I'm so glad to be a part of it. Slammed in my face Told me a girl needs to know her place Never listen, I proved them all wrong I rocked their asses from here to Hong Kong I'm not invited, but I'm coming anyway tip of the iceberg if you want to hear the whole lita ford story i recommend the book living like a runaway now out in paperback thank you lita ford so much for sharing your life's music and your life story with us thanks to nick bocott for stopping by and showing us the code series amplifiers i gotta have one myself it's just the ultimate little rock toy it's not a toy but i mean come on it's like so portable and you can get any sound out of it 100 different presets control it with your phone via bluetooth don't even need to touch the knobs yeah nick bocott you're the man marshall amps still knocking down walls here in 2016-17 thanks to zoom for the h6 handy recorder that i used to record this episode and thank you to Mike Melinda, Editor-in-Chief of Guitar Player Magazine, and Bill Amstutz, Vice President at New Bay Media, who support this podcast and have been behind me every step of the way. I'm Jude Gold. Follow me on Twitter at Jude underscore Gold, or follow us at No Guitar is Safe Facebook page, where I always put up exclusive videos. I even have a YouTube channel. 
under my own name, Jude Gold, where I put up the videos too, depending on what your favorite medium is. Again, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year to you. And keep it alive until 2095.